KH 3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, November 18th, 2010, Pulmonary Ventilation. I, it's it's one, of, one of the only things I've found that people actually don't want to get their money's worth. <laughs> you know? You complain about how expensive it is, you, the student fees and the tuition, you pay your money, you sign up for the class, you come to the class, class canceled, yes! <laughs> Yay! But I am here to make sure you get your money's worth, at least in the exercise physiology realm. <clears throat> okay. When we finished up last time, we were talking about when we finished up last time, we were talking about patterns of response of ventilation to exercise. Okay? Now, um, these are graphs of an individual person's real response to exercise. So, um, there is some variation and some variability. VE, or minute ventilation, will largely go up in a pretty linear fashion early on, and then there's some kind of departure point where it goes up more abruptly. Okay? Um, some people don't show that. Some people it just makes a curve upwards. Some people goes up and goes up more steeply. But it, th this one represents what happens pretty well. Okay? So for purposes of things like maybe a quiz or exam or that sort of thing. Um, if we look at respiratory rate, you know, don't necessarily try to memorize and replicate exactly you know, this little bump here, and then, you know, that kind of thing. It's basically a curve upwards like this, where it does go up early on, but it jumps up more at the end. Okay, so if you're trying to represent this as a general pattern of response, it's a little bit of increase early on, and then more increase as you get later. So it's more of a curve like this. Okay? This one's also a little bit, I don't want to say strange, but there's some variability. Typically, you don't see quite as big of an abrupt jump in tidal volume. And, you know, so don't try to replicate this exactly. This is more or less a slower, uh, a bigger curve upwards and then the plateau. Okay? So a, a faster rise early on and then a plateau. So I just want to make sure people don't get confused by these graphs of real responses. But this is an individual, so you might get some variability. This tends to be more of a... Uh, more of a big increase early on, and then it levels off into that plateau. Okay? I, I do see this on quizzes and exams sometimes, where you can see people have this in their head, and they're trying to duplicate this particular graph exactly. I'm just looking for the pattern of response. Okay? All right, well, let's talk about... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you think... Uh, <laughs> There's a hint in there somewhere. All right, so let's talk about the mechanics of ventilation a little bit. Um, as we talked about, uh, in contrast to the cardiovascular system, this is, a, 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 it, this is not one-way movement, it's two-way movement, in and out through the same pipes. In contrast to the cardiovascular system, cardiovascular system, the heart generates force, squeezes on blood, and generates high pressure 
to push blood through the system. With the pulmonary system, we do the opposite. We use muscular force, but it's to generate negative pressure that pulls air in. Okay, so the inspiratory part is by generating negative pressure. We do then generate some positive pressure to push the air back out, particularly during exercise when our ventilation uh, needs are higher. Now, so in order to generate this uh, pressure difference, it requires muscular force. And it's not just the force that's required of moving the air, there are certain resistances that need to be overcome. There's a specific term in pulmonary physiology, that particularly when you take Dr. Engel's cardiopulmonary physiology class, that you'll come in uh, contact with, and it's just the, this term compliance. It essentially means how easy is it for the lungs to be inflated. Okay, how, how easy is it for the lungs to be inflated? Now, the lungs are extensible, the tissue in the lungs uh, is extensible, but they are also elastic. So if you stretch the lung material and you remove that force, it wants to rebound to its original shape. Also, that elasticity provides some resistance. Okay? Um, <clears throat> this lung tissue, that, the connective tissue and the elastic tissue, gets a little bit stiffer as you get older. And so would your lung compliance go up? or down as you get older. It goes down. They are, lungs are more difficult to expand, so compliance goes down as you get older. Uh, there are certain disease states like cystic fibrosis that affects lung tissue that makes it more difficult to expand the lungs, so lung compliance in, in those kinds of disease states is poor. All right, there is tissue resistance as well. Um, the lungs sit inside the chest, so you've got the chest wall, you've got the ribs, you've got the muscles, uh, etc. You've also got abdominal contents. Uh, what is it that separates the thorax from the abdomen? The diaphragm. Okay, and so the diaphragm is this you know dome-shaped sheet of muscle. If you look at it from the side, it attaches to the sternum and the ribs up here, attaches to the spine down back here. So it's this dome shape, and it separates the thorax from the abdomen. And in order for the um, diaphragm to contract, it pulls downward like this. It has to move these abdominal contents out of the way. And there is some resistance to those tissues moving. Okay, So we've got some <clears throat> resistance related to the lung tissue itself. We've got some resistance related to the tissues that surround the lungs. Uh, and then we also have resistance that is related to the airways themselves, the, the tubes. All right, in order to generate airflow, airflow is related to a change in pressure or a difference in pressure between two areas divided by the resistance to that flow. And so you can see if it's the numerator, if you get a bigger pressure differential, you get more flow. But if you get more resistance, that's inversely related. So more resistance, keeping pressure equal, more resistance means less flow. Okay. Now one of the things that we'll see with some uh, kind of abnormal states like asthma is uh, we dramatically increase resistance to airflow 
okay, <clears throat> would by uh, getting this bronchoconstriction. But if the first person still has the same airflow demand, so if they're having an asthma attack and they're sitting at rest, they still need to move the same amount of air in and out, but resistance is dramatically higher. What do they have to do to get that amount of air in and out? So if this has gone up and we still need this to be the same, what has to happen to the change in pressure? It's got to go up. Okay, and so how do we get that increase in change in pressure? More, what's that? One of those inhalers. That actually is going to affect this. Okay, and we'll get to that in a minute. He said one of those inhalers. That actually tries to get at the issue of bronchoconstriction, but more muscle effort. Okay, when somebody's having an asthma attack, are they visibly laboring with their breathing more so than when not? Yeah, so they're using more muscle power, more muscle force to create a bigger change in pressure to overcome that additional resistance, okay? All right, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. All right, so here's our scheme. You know, we've got the thorax up here. Here's the diaphragm. And so we know from our anatomy and our earlier physiology this, that this intrathoracic cavity essentially is airtight. Okay? It has those pleural membranes that keep this air cavity or this uh, cavity airtight. So air doesn't typically move in and out of the intrathoracic space. Okay. So <clears throat> when we contract the diaphragm, pull the diaphragm down to here, so it's pulled down to here, we increase this intrathoracic volume. So we contract our diaphragm, pull it down, intrathoracic volume goes up. So if we have increased intrathoracic volume, what happens to the pressure in here? It goes down, generates negative pressure. Then the way we, that generates a pressure difference between out here and in the thoracic space. So essentially all you have to do is open your mouth and make sure your epiglottis is open and that pulls air into the lungs to balance that change in pressure. Okay? Then when we remove this muscle force, okay, we stop contracting the diaphragm. The diaphragm returns to its normal position. The chest wall and lung tissue returns to its normal position. That decreases thoracic volume. So if thoracic volume goes down, pressure goes up, creates a pressure difference, higher pressure here than out here, and that air goes back out again. Okay? So muscle force changes intrathoracic volume, which makes intrathoracic pressure go down. We inspire, we relax the diaphragm, decreasing intrathoracic volume, increasing intrathoracic pressure, and pushing that air back out. Okay? So our diaphragm is our main inspiratory muscle. The diaphragm is the muscle that you're primarily going to use in ventilation at rest, but particularly when our ventilation demands go up, we need the assistance of other muscles. And pretty much any muscles that will help us take these ribs and lift them up and rotate them outwards like this. Because okay, you guys know that the ribs are like bucket handles, right? 
So they, they sit like this, uh, the ones that are attached to the sternum and the spine, they sit like this. And if you can pull on those ribs, it'll pull them up and outwards like this, like a bucket handle. Okay? So any muscles that can do that are intercostals, okay, internal and external intercostals. If you contract these, it can pull on the rib below it, pull on the rib below it, pull on the rib below it, etc. Uh, muscles in our neck are scalenes and our sternocleidomastoids, which can lift on the sternum and the first two ribs. Okay? These are accessory muscles of inspiration. They can help lift the sternum and lift these ribs up and out. Uh, and so we will use these as accessory muscles when our ventilation demands go up. Okay, so at rest, inspiration or breathing in is active. It requires muscle force. But expiration is probably mostly passive. It's that elastic return to position that helps push that air back out. Okay, so at rest, inspiration active, Expiration, probably don't need a lot of muscle force. During exercise, though, we increase our ventilation demands. It goes from 7 or 8 liters a minute to... Actually, I don't think we even talked about figures, did we? What does ventilation go up to? VE, maximum ventilation. It's about 7 or 8 liters a minute at rest. How, how far can it go? How many liters of air can you move every 60 seconds? 30? 40, 50, 35. good guess, but way low, okay? And an average size adult is probably going to be well over 100 liters a minute, okay? Maximum is probably going to be mostly related to body size, right? Bigger people, bigger lungs are going to move more air. Um, the, the biggest I've ever seen uh, on a, uh, figures with a human uh, was a uh, Olympic rower who was about 6'5 and weighed about 225 pounds. Big guy. He's kind of like a linebacker in a boat. Uh, we did a max test on him, and not only was his absolute VO2 max very high, he moved about 220 liters of air every 60 seconds at maximal exercise. Okay? Big guy, big lungs, well-trained, could move a lot of air. Okay? But most people are probably in the range of 100, 125, maybe 150 if you're a you know, reasonable sized person. All right. So if you have to move that much air in and out, you're going to use not only the diaphragm, you're going to use accessory muscles of inspiration, and you can't wait for the passive expiration to get that air out before you get the next breath in. So now we've got to depend on some muscles of expiration. And our principal muscles of expiration are our abdominal muscles. Because what they're going to do is they're going to squeeze the abdominal contents and push them back in and up. And that's going to help uh, push that diaphragm up, which will help push air out. Okay? And so our... Actually, I got back here. Our internal and external obliques, transverse abdominus, and rectus abdominus. Okay, our four abdominal exercise or uh, abdominal muscle groups 
are going to be our muscles of active expiration. Okay, expiration. Mostly passive at rest. During exercise, high levels of ventilation. We've got to push that air out so we can get the next breath in. Okay, now this resistance. This is the formula that's related to resistance. Um, H is a constant. Uh, length, uh, L stands for length. So that's like the length of the tube that you're breathing through. And most of you all know if you, you know, breathe through a short straw, but you take a long tube, the longer the tube, the greater the resistance. Okay? Um, this is the viscosity of the, the fluid or the gas. So if the viscosity increases, it basically gets thicker, so it's more difficult to move. That's not so much of an um, issue in pulmonary physiology because the air that you breathe pretty much stays the same. Um, there are some notable examples, uh, like my kids like to do when they get the, the helium balloons. Okay? You know why your voice changes when you take in the helium? It doesn't stretch the vocal cords. It's the, the helium has, is less dense than air. And so as, that, air, as that, that gas flows across your vocal cords, it creates different, a different uh, tone uh, or sound because the density of that air is different. Okay? But that's um, typically not an issue that we deal with. Okay, so resistance down here, pi is a constant. But here's probably our most important factor with resistance, and that's the radius of the tube. Okay? The radius of the tube that you're breathing through. So not only is it an important factor, but it is to the power of four. Okay? So small changes in radius of the tube can cause big changes in resistance. So basically what happens here, if you increase... If you increase radius, so you make the denominator bigger, you're dividing through by a larger number, resistance goes down. If you make the radius smaller, you're dividing through by a smaller number, and resistance goes up. And it goes up by a factor of four. So just as an example, if you were able to take this breathing tube and double its radius, the resistance to flow through that tube actually falls 16 times. Okay? So small changes, the take-home point here is small changes in radius of the tube makes big differences in resistance to flow. That's why asthma is such a, uh, a difficult thing is because it causes big changes in resistance to flow and can severely impair uh, adequate ventilation. All right, well, let's look at things that can result in uh, the, these tubes getting too small and increasing breathing resistance. <clears throat> um, you can have some nervous and endocrine system responses. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation of smooth muscle in the cardiovascular system causes constriction. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation of smooth muscle in the pulmonary system causes exactly the opposite, causes dilation. Your bronchi and bronchioles have smooth muscle in the walls. 
if that smooth muscle contracts, radius goes down, resistance goes up. If that smooth muscle relaxes, you get bronchodilation. Okay? So let's think. Fight or flight scenario. Uh, you're suddenly uh, presented with this perceived threat. You get strong sympathetic nervous system stimulation. In order to prepare the body to either fight or flee quickly, would it make sense to have low airway resistance or high airway resistance? Low. You want that bronchodilation so you can move lots of air quickly so that you can either fight or run like hell. Okay? So sympathetic nervous system stimulation, bronchodilation. Okay? Bronchodilation. Remember, it's exactly opposite of the cardiovascular system. Okay, there are obviously allergic reactions, pollen, mold, dust, you know, all kinds of different things that... Uh, uh, People are allergic to, you know, animal hair, etc. Variety of other irritants like smoke, dust, uh, some of the gases that are in smog, particulate matter, etc. Uh, cold, dry air. What are the two things we do to the air that we breathe before it gets down to our our alveoli? We heat it and we uh, uh, add humidify it. Okay. The colder the air, the more heat you have to add to it. The drier the air, the more moisture you have to add to it. And so as you breathe that air in, you add heat and moisture to it, water vapor to it. And then when you exhale, do you recapture all of that before you send it out? No. So we lose heat and we lose water vapor when we expire or, or exhale. So when air is colder and drier, it tends to be an irritant to the pulmonary system and can result in some bronchoconstriction or bronchospasm. All right, various disease states like asthma. Uh, and there's a particular type of, it's sometimes referred to as exercise-induced asthma, probably more appropriately as exercise-induced bronchospasm, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. But asthma essentially is a hyperreactivity of our airways to something. And in an attempt to protect the body from a perceived threat, it bronchospasms. You get severe bronchoconstriction. And so that's essentially what asthma is. And when that happens frequently, it's followed up by an inflammation, which means the walls of those airways become inflamed and thicker and, and then uh, causes increased resistance to airflow. All right, well, let's talk about the specific exercise-induced bronchospasm for a moment. <clears throat> this is a type of airway constriction that tends to happen with people when they exercise. Um, a very high percentage of people that have diagnosed asthma will have exercise-induced bronchospasm. Okay, very high percentage, probably virtually everybody. Um, of people who are susceptible to various uh, allergies, you know, if you, if you don't have asthma, but, you know, the pollen really gets to you in the spring or, or you know, uh, dust gets to you, causes you to sneeze a lot and that sort of thing, people that are uh, sensitive to certain allergens, probably 25% uh, or so of those people will experience 
exercise-induced bronchospasm. And then just of the general population that's not necessarily sensitive to allergens, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of the population will also experience this. Okay? So what happens? <clears throat> when people start to exercise, uh, their oxygen consumption goes up, so their oxygen demand goes up. They increase their minute ventilation. Okay, so we've seen that. VE starts to go up. Um, do, you, do you breathe through your nose or through your mouth when you exercise? Both. Um, do you breathe through your nose or your mouth mostly when you're at rest? How come? You got, you got two, two ways of doing it. How do you, how do you decide to switch? What's that? Okay, it, it, it does have to do with demand. And what else might it have to do with? Well, first of all, if, dem if demand is not very high, um, why would you breathe through your nose? What's an advantage of breathing through your nose? Probably filtering, okay, because you have, uh, you have nasal hairs. You've got this, and if you look at your, uh, the anatomy of the nasal cavities, they're tall and thin, and they have folds of tissue that go back like this. So as you breathe that air in, it has more surface area of tissue to contact for us to be able to warm, humidify, and filter the air that we breathe in. Okay? So if, if it does a good job of that when you breathe through your nose, um, why don't you keep breathing through your nose when demand is high, when you start exercising? High resistance. Those same things that make it good for filtering, narrow passages with lots of folds, because those passages are narrow, in effect the radius is small, the resistance is high. Okay? So when people start exercising, you probably still mostly are breathing through your nose. So if you're at 7 or 8 liters a minute of minute ventilation, you start exercising. When that climbs to about 20 or 30 liters per minute, of airflow that you need, you switch out, you know, you open your mouth, bigger pipe, right? And you start breathing in more through your mouth because it's much lower resistance because the radius of that tube is much bigger, okay? So the disadvantage then is we're taking in more air and it's going through a system that's not as filtered or doesn't condition the air um, uh, as readily, okay? So you exercise, increase oxygen demand. We know we in need to increase minute ventilation. And that results in increased mouth breathing. Okay, So more of our breathing comes in. So we still warm and humidify the air. But as the air goes in, it goes further down the system before it is completely warmed and humidified. Okay, So it gets further down the various branches down into your bronchioles. Also, because you're breathing through a, a, a bigger tube with less resistance, the air goes out easier. And when it goes out quicker and easier and higher volume, you lose more uh, water vapor and you lose more heat. Okay? Uh, so why, um, after the intense exercise, they say breathe through your, um, your nose instead of your mouth? I cannot think of a good pulmonary physiology reason why you should do that. Uh, one, one thing that, and they, they do this technique sometimes with people with pulmonary disease, is 
Um, there, there's a tendency at high rates of ventilation, but th this wouldn't necessarily, well, it might be in the immediate aftermath of exercise, but the idea is sometimes at high rates of ventilation, and so people with pulmonary disease, even at rest, they're moving lots of air because their lungs are not diffusing properly, which we'll talk about either later today or the week from Tuesday. What they will tell them to do is actually con consciously um, hold their breath a little bit because that retains that air in their lungs a little bit longer so that they get more diffusion before they blow that breath right back out. Okay? Um, I don't necessarily think that's particularly valid if you've got perfectly healthy lungs. So I'm not sure there's really necessarily a good reason to do that. So, yes? Yep. Yep. It's it's both. Well, um, cold air typically can can uh, uh, hold less water vapor. Okay. It's one of the reasons that you see you can see your breath when you exhale when it's cold. You know you you can't see that during the summer, right? But you can see it during the winter. It's the same breath that you're breathing out, but now you can see your breath. What happens is the air is cold. And so as the humidified air comes out of your lungs, some of that water vapor in the air that you've just breathed out condenses. And so you, you can see it. Um, so what happens is, as you breathe in that air, if it's cold outside, typically that air is less humid. So it's two things. It's colder and it's less humid. So your body has to add both more heat to it and more water vapor to it. Okay? And so therefore, when you breathe out, you lose more heat and you lose more water vapor. Okay? Um, Matthew? Does the body adapt to that if you're training cold weather? Um, it depends. If <clears throat> you, you certainly do adapt to some degree. Um, and you've got so many branches and so many... Uh, such long distance of tubes that by the time the air, even if it's, I mean, they've done studies where they've super cooled air and had people breathe it while they're exercising. Um, even when it's 20, 30 degrees below zero, you know, this, this notion that you can freeze your lungs uh, is really not accurate because what happens is uh, it takes longer and it goes deeper, but by the time that air gets to the alveoli, it's warmed and humidified, Okay. Um, but it goes deeper, and so therefore it has more opportunity to be an irritant to your pulmonary system. And so what tends to happen is the pulmonary system reacts. Its way of reacting, if something is irritating it, is to try to shut down to keep out whatever's irritating it. Okay? Um, so there's, there's at least two typical responses of your pulmonary system when it's being irritated. It creates more mucus and it starts to constrict or shut down to keep out whatever was coming in. You know, the increase in mucus is to coat the inside of your breathing tubes to try to protect, and the constriction is to try to keep out whatever is irritating it. That's also why after you exercise when it's cold out, a lot of times you wheeze and, and cough a little bit afterwards, okay? And that's what's happening. The cold, dry air 
irritates the system, constricts a little bit, and you produce a little more mucus, which can lead to that coughing. Okay? Now, that can happen to a lot of people, but what, what this exercise-induced bronchospasm is that you get this respiratory heat and water loss. Okay? There are irritant receptors in your lungs, you know, that, that are they're sensing this coldness, this uh, dryness, etc. So this is through the uh, uh, vagus nerve, which is parasympathetic. Okay, the vagus nerve is parasympathetic. So if we get parasympathetic stimulation to smooth muscle in the pulmonary system, what what's that going to cause that smooth muscle to do? Constrict. Okay. So sympathetic is dilate, parasympathetic in the lungs is going to constrict. All right, so the lungs are irritated. They're going to send a signal to constrict, to bronchoconstrict, to try to protect these, uh, this lung tissue. Okay, so we get this bronchospasm. Then a secondary thing happens is that these other um, cells, these mast cells are stimulated and they will release a variety of different uh, uh, substances histamine, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, plasma activating factor and these things also result in bronchospasm. You all are familiar with this you know histamine is a bronchoconstrictor because we all know when you have a cold and you go take a medicine uh, to try to help with the stuffiness, it contains an antihistamine. Okay. All right. So the, this is this initial bronchospasm that causes the constriction, causes labored breathing. Because if we're going to continue the same level of effort, the same level of ventilation, but we're now constricted, you need a lot more effort to move that air. And this exercise-induced bronchospasm can actually result in uh, declines in performance. Okay? Because people, they feel tightness in their chest. They can't move enough air to sustain the level of exercise they're doing. It can persist for some hours after exercise is over because of what's called this late-phase response where you get these other chemical factors that, are, that result in inflammation. And so the breathing tubes, as well as being constricted, then get inflamed, and so they, they, the walls become thicker. Okay, and that increases resistance as well. Um, you can look at environmental conditions with athletes as an example to give an idea of the incidence of uh, exercise-induced bronchospasm. Um, very high rates of EIB reported by athletes in winter Olympic sports. Okay, cross-country skiing, biathlon, um, etc. Speed skating. Okay, so while these athletes can certainly adapt, if they don't take precautionary measures, they still can suffer from this um, because of the environment that they're exercising in. Uh, guess what sport EIB is almost unheard of in? Swimming. Swimming. Exactly. Exactly. Because the water temperature is usually relatively warm and you're breathing right near that air-water interface so the air that you're breathing in is very humid. Okay? So swimmers have very low incidence of EIB um, 
winter Olympic sports. There's a, a study published by uh, a group from the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs that showed in excess of 50% of the winter sport athletes they, they um, tested have EIB. Okay? Um, <clears throat> now, what can you do about it? Um, one of the things you can do is you can go to a physician and they can treat it similarly to how asthma is treated. Okay, uh, One way would be to take certain drugs that affect this bronchoconstriction or this bronchospasm. But, and and that's, that's fine for kind of your average exerciser or average athlete. Um, they probably don't have to take them all the time. They can probably have an inhaler or something like that that they use uh, within the uh, short time period before their exercise session. Um, athletes that are involved in sports where there may be doping control have to be very careful though because the kinds of drugs that are most effective at bronchodilation are drugs that mimic the effect of the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, because sympathetic nervous system is going to result in bronchodilation. Okay? But a lot of those drugs are also similar to ones that people may be concerned that it would affect, uh, try to positively affect performance in other ways. So there are some drugs that are out there and there's a lot of physicians that are, that are knowledgeable uh, with sports medicine that can work with people to make sure they get the right kind of bronchodilators. Um, the other thing that people can do <clears throat> Try to control the conditions in which you exercise. Again, during the winter time, some people may need to default to working out in the gym, you know, instead of running outside, uh, those types of things. The other thing that really will help is a prolonged warm-up period. If people do a very low intensity, but instead of a typical four or five minute warm-up, they'll do a low intensity, 10, 15, 20 minute slow, gradual warm-up, and then do their exercise session, what happens is uh, the low intensity activity provokes a little bit of the bronchospasm, but there's a latent period then that you can then impose higher intensity exercise on top of that and the bronchospasm doesn't get any worse. Okay? So for people that are particularly susceptible to this and they don't want to, you know, uh, they still want to be able to work out, but they don't want to go, you know, and, and uh, get certain types of drugs and that sort of thing, the low-intensity prolonged warm-up uh, can help a lot. Walk on a treadmill indoors or at the gym for uh, 10 or 15 minutes to warm up before you go outside to exercise or run in the wintertime. Okay? So EIB. <clears throat> All right, well, let's talk about the control of ventilation a little bit. <clears throat> uh, the primary center that's going to control our ventilation um, is uh, in the medulla oblongata, in the, in the back of your brain. The principal thing that is related to control of ventilation is PCO2 or the partial pressure of carbon dioxide that's found in our blood. As you can see by uh, this graph, <coughs> we've got VE or minute ventilation over here, and we've got the partial pressure of, the, so the P stands for partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. Okay, we have 
sensors, chemoreceptors, that can sense the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. And you can see it's a pretty linear response. As the partial pressure of CO2 goes up, minute ventilation goes up pretty much pretty linearly. Okay? So as so the main driving force for ventilation is uh, uh, negative feedback from the partial pressure of CO2 in the blood sends a signal back to the respiratory control center in the brain. Respiratory control center then sends a signal to our uh, inspiratory muscles to generate more force to increase ventilation and bring in more air. Okay, so it's it's kind of backwards. We need oxygen but we increase our ventilation mostly to get rid of CO2. Okay? We need oxygen, but we get more oxygen in because we breathe more to get rid of CO2. Okay? So it seems a little odd, a little backwards, but it probably makes sense because it's a signal that is more readily um, uh, uh, obtained, I guess, or obtained a little quicker uh, then oxygen going down is the CO2 levels going up as a result because the immediate result of the increase in oxidative phosphorylation is a production of CO2. That CO2 goes out in the blood, you can see, you know, the body senses that CO2 going up, triggers an increase in ventilation, more movement of air, we get rid of more CO2. Okay. <clears throat> you can manipulate this voluntarily to a certain extent. Um, when you went to the pool or the lake during the summer when you were a kid and you were having contests to see who could, who could swim underwater the furthest, could you, you know, swim all the way across the pool and, and touch the other side without coming up for air, uh, what was the strategy you used to hold your breath longer? Deep breath. Deeper, deep breath, but just one? Do you just take one big breath? Ah, deep breath a bunch of times. Okay, You hyperventilate. Stand on the side of the pool, take eight or ten big breaths, okay? When your, when your body's CO2 levels doesn't demand a higher ventilation, but you move more air in and out, okay? Every one of those breaths that you exhale takes more CO2 with it, okay? So when you're hyperventilating, what you do is you push your CO2 levels down here somewhere. So then when you hold your breath, Okay, as you're holding your breath, you're not ventilating. CO2 levels are going to start to rise in the body. But if you start with a lower level, it takes longer to get to the level that triggers the ventilation. Okay? So that's why hyperventilating for a little while, you don't want to do it excessively. Um, there's actually, anybody ever seen the, the documentaries on the people that do the uh, free diving um, these are people whose who's chosen sport is to see how deep they can dive uh, just in holding their breath in the ocean. The, well, that's the key with this particular sport is you have to get not only down there, you have to get back to the top. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like, and we'll talk about altitude uh, uh, the last week, it's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. It's, it's really, you hope it's, the objective is not just getting to the top of Mount Everest. It's getting to the top of Mount Everest and getting back down again. 
Um, the record, I think, for males is something like 170 feet. Okay, on one breath hold, 170 feet down, and back up again. And so these people obviously do all kinds of manipulations to um, um, be able to hold their breath for longer periods of time. But this is an instance where you've got to be careful to make sure that you don't overdo it, suppress your CO2 levels so much that you don't breathe and your O2 levels then get so low that you wind up losing consciousness because that probably doesn't help you in that sport. Okay, so primary driver of ventilation is carbon dioxide sensed by chemoreceptors and what it is sensing specifically is the partial pressure of CO2 that's in the arterial blood. Okay? Partial pressure of O2 or CO2 that's in arterial blood. Now, we are sensitive, we do have chemoreceptors that are sensitive to oxygen as well. And they're sensitive to oxygen levels falling. Okay? So same thing, we've got minute ventilation over here. Um, and we've got arterial PO2 now. So this is the partial pressure of oxygen. Now, notice the different shape of this curve. And in particular, we want to have lots of oxygen on the arterial side. If you see oxygen start falling as we fall from 100 to 80, what kind of change does that result in in ventilation over here? If we fall from 100 to 80, so oxygen content in the blood has fallen 20%, how much change in VO2 did we get, or VE over here did we get? Not much. Okay. So these receptors are not very sensitive when oxygen is fairly high. These receptors are not very sensitive when oxygen is, is really high. The, these receptors are more sensitive when oxygen gets pretty low. Okay, when oxygen gets pretty low. Um, we'll talk about altitude after uh, the break next week. In particular, when you go to altitude is when these oxygen receptors are more important because that's when you're getting into realms at high altitude when the oxygen content of the body is low and there needs to be a, something that's a stimulus for us to ventilate. And so it's when, when oxygen is low in that case, but it's got to be pretty low. So it doesn't really change things much up at the high end. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so take-home points. Primary driver of ventilation is CO2. And so increases in CO2 stimulates an increase in ventilation. We are sensitive to O2, and so declines in PO2 in the blood can cause increases in ventilation, but typically not until oxygen is at really low levels. Okay, we saw something similar to this with um, the um, cardiovascular system. <clears throat> All right, so here we've, here we've got a respiratory control center in the medulla oblongata. That is going to send signals out to our respiratory muscles, diaphragm, accessory muscles of inspiration, abdominal muscles, so muscles of expiration. Okay, um, we've got these peripheral chemoreceptors. So these are those receptors that are sensitive to CO2 
and O2, that if, if PCO2 in the body goes up, that is sensed, signal goes back to the uh, respiratory control center, send a signal to the respiratory muscles to pick it up and increase ventilation. Um, we do have some input for higher, from higher brain centers. Um, as an example, you can voluntarily increase or decrease your ventilation for some short period of time. You can voluntarily choose to hold your breath for a while. You can voluntarily choose to hyperventilate for a while. Okay, So you, there is input to do that. <clears throat> That's overridden by blood gas levels once you get to a certain uh, uh, disruption of blood gas levels. Quick example, you can hold your breath. The longer you hold your breath, you, you can hold your breath and suppress this, the, the increase in ventilation, but eventually the PCO2 gets to a level where the signal is sent here, the signal is sent here for you to breathe, to inspire, regardless of what you're consciously trying to tell your body to do. Okay. Um, there are some chemoreceptors and mechanoreceptors in muscle and in joints that feedback. Uh, we talked about this in the cardiovascular system. The studies where they anesthetize people, they can passively move their arms and legs and their heart rate will go up. You can also passively move people's arms and legs and their ventilation will go up a little bit. Okay, So there is some feedback where the body is essentially telling the respiratory control center that it is moving and it's likely to need more uh, uh, ventilation and so as that signal comes back tells the body to increase ventilation because it's moving. Okay. Mm. Now, probably the major take home point in all of this section on ventilation. For a normal person with healthy lungs, ventilation is almost never the limiting factor for exercise capability. Let me say that again. For a, a, a person with normal healthy lungs, ventilation is almost never the limiting factor for exercise performance. Even at high intensity, maximal exercise, even though you feel like you're gasping for air and you can't get enough air in and out, you actually are getting enough air in and out. Okay? Um, there's a substantial uh, reserve capacity of our ventilation. This one we mentioned last time, <clears throat> that vital capacity is, you can think of that as the single biggest breath you can take. When you do a max test on somebody and you measure their ventilation, their maximum tidal volume, their maximum size breaths that they take are usually only 60-70% of this vital capacity. Okay, So we can take bigger breaths. Same thing happens when we measure what's called maximum voluntary ventilation. That's a test where at rest you just measure how much air somebody can move in and out. It's a maximum uh, minute ventilation. When you do a max test and you look at what maximum ventilation people get to, it's usually only 70, 80, 90% of what they're able to do at rest. Okay? 
So what this tells us is we, you've got ventilatory capacity in reserve that we don't even use at maximal exercise. Okay, so uh, we're typically able to move a sufficient amount of air in and out. Now, an exception would be somebody with asthma or somebody with exercise-induced asthma or bronchospasm. Because in that case, the resistance gets so high that it's difficult to move enough air. Okay? Key point, ventilation almost never limits exercise capacity except for some special situations like asthma. I'm gonna... Pulmonary drift is one of those things that kind of goes along with cardiovascular drift. Uh, essentially what happens, and this, this exercise time should actually be longer than this, and particularly when it's hot and humid. If you're doing steady state exercise, like you're running a marathon, uh, steady state exercise for several hours, uh, essentially what happens is as the body heats up, we do start to use our pulmonary system to get rid of heat a little bit, and, and so <clears throat> that increases ventilation because we increase our dead space ventilation a little bit. We, we move air in and out a little bit faster in an attempt to try to get rid of some of that heat. So you, you do see minute ventilation go up as exercise intensity or exercise duration uh, uh, extends. So it's sort of like the hotter you get, you do sort of use uh, kind of a panting type thing to try to get rid of some extra heat. Okay, I'm going to skip that, skip that, and talk about age. Uh, and this is pretty simple. Basically, kids, for their size, their lungs are not as big. Okay, so for any level of exercise, their breathing frequency or respiratory rate is higher, um, and their tidal volume is lower than adults. Okay, so they're... Um, Kids, basically, because of lung size relative to body size, they can't take as large a breaths, so they've got to take, take them faster. Okay? And that applies to both um, males and females. So, same thing. So, for the, any given level of exercise, um, kids are going to breathe faster, and their tidal volume is going to be lower. Okay. All right. And I think I'm about done. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Um, so we are, let me see. Okay, so when we come back from uh, the break, we will do diffusion and maybe get into altitude on that Tuesday. On Thursday, we'll, if we haven't gotten to it, we'll do altitude, performance. Um, if I've got time, I'll fit in the female athlete triad stuff. We'll do a final quiz, okay? Uh, check you learn, because I'm going to be grading like crazy over the break. So you can check you learn. Um, if I can get some stuff done by lab tomorrow, I will. So we'll try to hand some stuff back in lab. I can tell you I probably won't be done with the exams by tomorrow.
So, but just check you learn. I'll have the grades up there sometime over the break.